Hello, and welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, a weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. This is your anti-nuclear wake-up call. We have an emphasis here on empowering you and me and we the people to have an activist response to the threat of what's posed to us by the nuclear industry and find a way to fight back. My name is Libby Halevi, and as I explain every week, I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. Uh, one of these days I will tell you the story and um, let you understand a bit more about exactly how horrifying it is to have a nuclear reactor leaking just down the block. In the meantime, this podcast is my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima, my opportunity to lend my voice to the growing anti-nuclear movement worldwide. Today, I am thrilled that I'm going to be interviewing Jane Swanson, who is a member of San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace. Her group works on getting the nuclear reactors at Diablo Canyon shut down and on many other nuclear-related issues as well. The work that Mothers for Peace does is a model for others that are working on anti-nuclear issues around the country. So if you want to find out what you might be able to do in your community, keep listening because I know you'll want to hear what Jane has to share. Today is Tuesday, August 16, 2011, day 158 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th. And here is the latest nuclear news. Radioactive cesium in excessive amounts have been found in Fukushima fish. Uh, these fish were caught at a port about 35 miles, 55 kilometers, from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and they contained radioactive cesium at levels exceeding an allowable limit, according to the environmental group Greenpeace. They said this on Tuesday, August 9th, last Tuesday. The samples were taken at Onahama Port in Iwaki, Fukushima Prefecture, in late July, and they included a species of rockfish that measured at 1,053 becquerels per, kilo, per kilogram. The reading, which was the highest among the samples, is more than double the government set limit of 500 becquerels per kilogram, uh, according to a study by Greenpeace. The other samples, which were all rock trout, measured between 625 and 749 becquerels per kilogram, again exceeding the provisional limit. In a petition that Greenpeace submitted to Prime Minister Naoto Kan on that Tuesday, they said, quote, there is no allowable limit for internal exposure that can conclusively be said not to pose any problems. And the petition also called for tougher marine product monitoring and for requiring businesses to display the level of radioactive materials contained in food products on the label. It would be nice if we knew what we were consuming so that we could make informed choices. Now, Japan has been spreading uh, its radiation around the world, as we knew it would. can't help it. Uh, radiation has now been found in shipments from Japan to both Egypt and Russia. Uh, Egypt's General Authority for Export and Import Control recently discovered radioactive cargo in two containers shipped from Japan to the Ein Sok Sokna port, uh, the Red Sea Ports Authority said. This is the third radioactive shipment Egypt has discovered over the past month. This one contained electric and medical instruments. The radioactive material was found aboard ships, uh, and the letter from Egypt's Atomic Energy Authorities confirmed that the cargo had above-regulation radiation levels. So what Egypt did was transferred the ships to a sandy area away from the port, 
in order to prevent the radiation from spreading to other shipments and vessels. No word on what it's doing to the sand. Meanwhile, in Russia, it was a shipment of automobiles that were sent that were found to have above acceptable levels of radiation, and Russia refused the shipments, and they were turned around back to Japan. For the human element, to give you a perspective, a survey shows that radioactive iodine has been detected in the thyroid glands of hundreds of children in Fukushima Prefecture. The result was reported to a meeting of the Japanese Pediatric Society in Tokyo this past Saturday. A group of researchers led by Hiroshima University professor Satoshi Tashiro tested 1,149 children in the prefecture for radiation in their thyroid glands in March following the accident at Fukushima. Radioactive iodine was detected in about half the children. Tashiro says that health checks must continue to prepare for any eventuality. Radiation in thyroid glands exceeding 100 millisieverts poses a threat to adult humans, but that is the high, but that the highest level in this survey of children was 35 millisieverts. That's cold comfort because they have smaller bodies, they are growing, they are constantly evolving the material in their body into creating larger bodies. So uh, 35 millisieverts in a child when the limit is 100 in an adult, this is not good. Now, there were tweets received from someone believed to be a nurse. She didn't identify herself completely, but it's a good guess it was a nurse. She was reporting from a large hospital in Sendai City, Miyagi Prefecture, and this was on August 10th. Uh, this was posted on ENE News. Um, if you don't go to that site, it is an excellent one and one of my main sources for information on what's going on in the world, nuclear world. Anyway, what was posted, this is translation, of course, is, quote, increasing number of patients with unexplainable decrease in white blood cells, headache, nausea. They are diagnosed for existing illness and undergo treatment, but they don't respond to the treatment at all. I've seen those cases in my hospital. I'm not saying they are all because of the radiation exposure, but I'm telling you what I'm seeing. Here's a separate tweet. When we wash their hair, it comes off in a clump. It is really scary. The doctor says, I really wonder why the white blood cell count is down. Doctor, don't be so relaxed about it. There is going to be more and more people who don't respond to treatment. And when you look at the symptoms, decrease in white blood cells, headache, nausea, and hair coming out in clumps. Those are classical symptoms of somebody who has been exposed to radiation. Meanwhile, the Japanese government is planning to allow residents from certain areas near the damaged nuclear plant in Fukushima to return to their homes. The Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, METI, has decided to make it easier for residents and business owners from within three kilometers of the plant to pay short visits to check their properties as early as this month. They also have plans to simplify evacuation preparedness. So how are they simplifying evacuation preparedness? Ah, they're just lifting the request for people in the 20 to 30 kilometer zone to be prepared for evacuation. You just don't have to worry about it anymore. Changes their statistics completely. Isn't that smart of them? Furthermore, Medi said it may be possible for some people from the evacuated areas to be able to return home permanently, noting that the damaged reactors are becoming more stable and radiation levels have decreased. Well, 
the reactors may be more stable. That is open for questioning. But the radiation level is still high. And in part, that has been explained yet again by Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates. Now, Arnie is an energy advisor with 39 years of nuclear power engineering experience. A former nuclear industry senior vice president, he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in nuclear engineering and holds a nuclear safety patent and was a licensed reactor operator. When he burned out on that industry, he became a high school science teacher, so he can explain things really well. Now, he was recorded in a podcast, which I have a link to this on um, the Nuclear Hot Seat website. Uh, it's by a group called solarimg.org. You can go just directly there. I've got uh, two separate links that will allow you to access it. But among the points made in this 19-minute recording, the Japanese government is able to report that radiation dosages are still within allowable limits because those limits have been raised by the government in an arbitrary fashion. Children are now considered to be okay when they are receiving a radiation dose equal to the limit previous al previously allowed only for adult nuclear workers. The limits for adult nuclear workers has been set at 10 times higher than it used to be. Now, at the current allowable exposure rates of the 8,000 people on site at Fukushima, at least 10% will get cancer. That's 800 new cases. And that's more than the 800 more than people who would have, by their own life path, had gotten cancer. Arnie also says that in the next five years, there will be a 20% increase in lung cancer rates. Now, part of the problem is that the Japanese are decontaminating sites and then to, quote-unquote, get rid of the waste, they are burning the contaminated waste. What happens then is the smoke rises up and it travels to decontaminated areas, recontaminating them. It can go to other prefectures. And when it wafts really high, it gets into the upper atmosphere. And that is where particles continue to circulate in a, crowd, in, in a cloud. It's recirculating radioactive cesium. Now, Arnie talked about rainouts. That is when this radioactive cloud in our upper atmosphere coincides with a rainstorm. Now, you know, rain particles don't form unless they have something to form around. So it's the radioactive particles that create the raindrops, and then the hot particles are washed to earth. ArnieOnFairWinds.com has got um, a separate report on hot particles, and it's very frightening. Now, Rainouts are when these hot particles are washed to earth, and we're going to be seeing at least another year of them. There was a rainout three weeks ago in British Columbia with radiation readings off the charts, and another just a few days ago in Oklahoma. So it's not just the West Coast or Japan or Hawaii that's being impacted by this. It can happen anywhere. At this time also, Fukushima was not releasing radiation, meaning the plant itself was not releasing radiation directly into the atmosphere. So this additional radiation came from the burning of the refuse. Now, I have an audio I'd like to play. This was recorded yesterday in Toronto. It's part of a video that's up on YouTube. You can also get it at ENE News. But it's from August 14th. And what it is is a citizen activist with a Geiger counter using his own equipment did what is a standard test for radiation. He used a paper towel to wipe rainwater off of one square 
kilometer of space. In this case, it was from one square kilometer on a solar panel. Then he brought the cowl up to test it with the Geiger counter. The first thing you'll hear, this is about 30 seconds, the first thing you'll hear is a normal background radiation. Then he brings the paper towel up to the Geiger counter. And he also makes a few comments along the way because he couldn't help it. Listen. Let's try this again. There we go. And, oh, we're actually a little higher. Oh, this panel is actually much higher. That's uh, 200 times the 100 scale. So that's uh, 20,000 counts per minute. That's even higher than uh, the the first panel I watched. Wow. Wow. So that was what radiation sounded like yesterday in Toronto. Now, Arnie is asking that any citizen activists who have radiation monitoring equipment do this exact same test. Take a clean paper towel, mark off one kilometer of surface rainwater after a rainstorm, wipe up the water, and test it with your equipment. If the result is high, he wants you to package up the towel very carefully in three layers of plastic and then mail it to him, I would say do this overnight, uh, at Fairwinds, F as in Frank, A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S dot com. What he will do is join with other scientists and do further testing on it using equipment which costs about $200,000 per unit. So he will be able to do a much better job. Here's the last point that came off of this that I just thought was, was a mind blower. Uh, this is from the interview with Arnie, and he's plugged in at very high levels. He said, the reason that we're not hearing more from the U.S. government about Fukushima is that back in April, a meeting, meeting took place, quote, at the highest levels of government, end quote, to agree that the U.S. would downplay Fukushima and continue to import food from Japan without additional monitoring for radiation. Now, we had a report, uh, an interview a few weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat with the head of Eden Foods talking about what they've done to protect their food source from radiation. Uh, this is outrageous. And Arnie has said that he and the scientists will be having a report coming out shortly that's going to basically lift the veil on all of this information that's not getting out. Well, with that being the start of the news, we have more and we have happier news later on, but right now I'd like to shift to uh, someone who's doing really terrific work on behalf of the anti-nuclear movement. Jane, are you on the call? I am. Wonderful. Well, Jane Swanson is a member of the San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace. This is a nonprofit organization concerned with the local dangers involving the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Can you imagine having that in your neighborhood? They're also concerned with the dangers of nuclear power, weapons, and waste on national and global levels. And additionally, Mothers for Peace concerns itself with issues of peace, social justice, and a safe environment. So like good mothers everywhere, it's not only don't do that, it also puts a do that into the equation. And Jane, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for the opportunity to reach your listeners. Wonderful. So start out, give us a little bit of background on the organization. How did it begin? When was it founded? Um, and how does the organization define its goals? 
Right, I can uh, I can do that pretty quickly. Uh, we formed in 1969 as an anti-Vietnam War group, hence the name Mothers mm-hmm. for Peace. Um, <clears throat> and we, of course, you know, we stopped the Vietnam War single-handedly. But once we did that, <laughs> as the war was winding down, we were turning our attention to the nuclear power plant that Pacific Gas and Electric Company was just starting to build. They started um, digging a big hole, excavating in 1969, and to tell you the truth, I didn't know what a nuclear power plant was at that time. Uh, But a couple smart mothers said, you know, we should find out. It sounds suspicious. That word nuclear sounds suspicious. So we studied up, learned a lot, and realized that there were two completely unacceptable components of any nuclear power plant. This is before it was built. Number one, they, by definition, create radioactive waste that are lethal virtually forever. And there was then nowhere for that radioactive waste to go, and that is still true today. And the other thing is we saw the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Because back in the 60s and probably early 70s, the radioactive waste from commercial reactors was used deliberately by the United States government to make nuclear weapons. So given that we were a peace group and wanted a good environment for future generations, we we filed in 1973 and became legal interveners against the licensing of the Diablo Canyon plant. And what that means is we've had legal standing for all these years, since 1973, and so whenever Pacific Gas and Electric Company wants to make a change in Diablo Canyon's license, such as now they want to get uh, license renewal for an extra, another additional 20 years, there are three parties to the case. There is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff, there's Pacific Gas and Electric Company, and there's the San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace. We we were an all-volunteer group, and we have one attorney as opposed to the other two having buildings full of professional staff, but we've managed to accomplish quite a bit over the time. Wonderful. You know, I mean, it's a real David and Goliath situation because they have not only their professional legal staff, but they also have PR people working on their side. So the fact that you have been able to bring yourselves into this position of parity with these two behemoths, I think is, is is a wonderful story that others need to know about so that they can be empowered in their local communities. Yes, we, we have legal parity. We, we don't have financial parity. But, you know, we, we have the facts on our side. It's just really hard to get those facts to speak louder than the money of the corporations. But we keep working at it and we'll you know we are slowly steering that ship of uh, the regulator we're 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 making the NRC change its ways in small steps we we would like to do it in one giant step but we have to settle for a little at a time well, would you tell us a bit about the current state of um your group's protests against Diablo Canyon where do we stand Yes, um, PG&E has applied for uh, license renewal. The current licenses for the two reactors at Diablo Canyon uh, will expire in 2024 and 2025, and PG&E wants to uh, 
to um, extend that till 2044 and 2045, respectively. So Mothers for Peace has already gotten four contentions in the hopper. And what that means is we have four legal arguments that we convinced the uh, NRC, it's the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board, it's a, a lower level within the NRC, we, we got them to accept four legal arguments that we have. Um, I, I need to back up here and make sure people understand that a federal regulator does not operate under the same rules as a court of law. So whatever you know about courts and judges, toss it out the window because a federal regulator gets to make up the rules and then they get to tell you which issues you're allowed to argue about. But we have four contentions in. Is that allowed? I mean, that that just sounds insane. Well, it feels insane. It it it, it, it think of the Kafka short stories you've read of these surreal worlds. <laughs> it's kind of that way. I'm telling you, um, since since March 11th, when I started to get you know compulsively active on this issue, I feel like I, this is Alice through the looking glass because man, the world looks really different than it did before Fukushima. Yeah, it, it, it has gotten a whole lot of attention to these these problems. Mm -hmm. Our, the Mothers for Peace contentions against license renewal, I'll, I can summarize. Uh, the main thing is seismicity because Diablo Canyon is surrounded by 13 earthquake faults. Count them, 13. One of them was not discovered until 2008. And it was not it was not found by PG&E. It was found by the USGS, the United States Geological Survey. So a government organization, seismologists, uh, identified that the shoreline fault. PG&E has committed to doing intense study of that fault. Uh, that'll take them till the end of 2015. And. Um, there were many pressures brought to bear on the NRC from everybody from the Mothers for Peace to um, local boards of supervisors. We could run down that list. But eventually the NRC did rule that it would postpone consideration of the environmental issues uh, surrounding that application for license renewal until after the seismic studies are done. So that takes it till 2015 before they go forward on that. So. That's good. It buys us time to learn more, and the more facts you know, the more horrible and illogical it looks. Diablo never should have been allowed to operate in the first place because the NRC has always had a rule. You can't site a nuclear power plant next to a major active earthquake fault. But, but they, they seem to have ignored that with, you know, San Onofre, with uh, Indian Point. Um, it just seems if there's a seismically or somehow a compromised area, that's where they're going to site a nuclear reactor. Well, it, uh, speaking of the coast of California, there is nowhere on the coast of California that isn't riddled with major earthquake faults. That's, you know, you can't find a place here. Um when PG&E built Diablo, they, they claimed that they had surveyed and found there were no major active faults nearby. However, midway in their construction, uh, the Shell Oil geologists uh, identified the Hosgree Fault, which is major and active, and those terms have um, specific definitions uh, by the USGS. And the Hosgree Fault is three and a half miles from Diablo Canyon. So I really thought in the late 70s when that fault was known, I actually thought Mother's for Peace was going to be able to stop Diablo from ever opening its doors because it was so blatantly 
in contradiction to the NRC's own regulations. But the NRC is pretty clever and pretty much in the pocket of the industry, so they grandfathered in Diablo Canyon. And they said that. That's their word, not mine. They said we're going to grandfather in this um, license for Diablo, even though it's in the wrong place because, oh, poor PG&E, they put so much money into it. So the, the investment of the utility trumped public safety, and that's the only reason Diablo was ever allowed to open. And that just made me more angry, so I stuck with it. Well, activism is a great place to put anger. Um, what additional actions, I mean, this is obviously a big overarching uh, platform that your group has, and you're doing terrific work on it at a very sophisticated level. Do you have other actions that people might be able to join you in? We do, we do. And really, your listeners are obviously intelligent, concerned people to be listening, and they will want to go to our website, which is excellent, updated, and organized, and it's mothersforpeace.org. So one word, mothersforpeace.org. And there are um, very nice topics over there. They can read about you know, sustainable energy options. We're just expanding that part. They can read about our opposition to license renewal, uh, which is what we're involved in right now. And they can click on the Donate Now button if they'd like. Um, Always encouraged. Yes, definitely encouraged. So, you know, if people would like to help us out with a contribution, and we're very happy with $5, $25, or 2000 whatever you got, we're happy because that's how we've kept going since 1973 on these issues. Um, I'm sorry. If you don't like to donate online, there's also a a post office box listed there, so uh, a person could just mail a check if they wanted to. But, you know, every time we're just an all-volunteer group, no paid persons, the money is for the one gorgeous attorney, Diane Curran, does fantastic work. She has a specialist in the ways of the NRC. She represents many anti-nuclear groups. So, uh, And she only charges this for a fraction of the hours she works for us, I'm quite sure. But we need to pay her, and we need to pay expert witnesses now and then. And expert witnesses don't date, donate one minute. You really do need to pay them, and that's fair enough. They mm-hmm. spent you know, decades getting their PhDs and everything. And there's travel expenses. So every time Mother's for Peace uses our intervener status, we need to raise between eighty-five and one hundred thousand dollars. And that's where we are now. We're estimating eighty-five thousand dollars will get us through the uh, opposition to license renewal. So contributions count. And there's also um, on our website there is um, a, a, a one pager. Uh, called Be an Ambassador for Mothers for Peace, if you put in the search box Ambassador. And that lists some really simple ways besides donating money that people can help, and it definitely includes being informed and informing others. And we go out and speak. We've got slideshows we've created, so we run around and speak. We've been known to go to the Bay Area and Santa Barbara. We get around. (laughs) This is great. So... Just one more question before we'll open it up to questions from uh, the listeners, and that is how does your work connect to the larger anti-nuclear movement in the country? In other words, are you in contact with other groups that say, ooh, you filed a really good uh, contention uh, against Diablo Canyon. Can we borrow your wording? Is there some way that you share information? Oh, my goodness, yes, yes, yes. 
I could I could take a half an hour to answer that question, but I'll just give the most recent example. Just uh, what was that? A couple of weeks ago, on August 11, um, Diane Curran, the attorney I mentioned, she ha- we had been working for a couple of months um, with 26 other intervener groups throughout the nation, and 26 groups filed lawsuits against the NRC on the same day. Diane Curran had done the general wording and then helped each intervener group adapt it to the issues at their specific plant. So, you know, one of these lawsuits went in from Mothers for Peace and it was specifically about Diablo Canyon and, you know, the other groups tweaked it to fit their plants. But all of them center on this Fukushima task force that gave 12 recommendations this task force was appointed by the NRC, by the commissioners themselves, and they handpicked staffers within the NRC who did a 90-day study of what could be learned from Fukushima and came up with 12 recommendations for making reactors safer. And the NRC listened to their report and read their report, and so did I, and decided not to act on it. The majority of the commissioners, three out of five of them voted to table it and not respond right now. Not respond now, they'll do further studies, blah, 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 but not implement these 12 recommendations for greater safety. So that is what triggered these lawsuits, and they're all based upon the fact that, you know, you can't ignore the findings of your own experts that you appointed because one of their, well, among their findings, if I can try to summarize it, was that they're out of compliance with the National Environmental Policy Act and other federal laws. In other words, the uh, regulations the NRC does enforce regarding their operating plants does not adequately provide for public safety. Fukushima has shown that, and the task force spelled it out how to fix that, and the commissioner said, Mm -hmm. well, no, no thank you, we're not going to bother. Well, I want to thank you for that report because you just eliminated an entire story that I was going to share immediately after you. (laughs) But I have a few things to add. What I'd like to do right now is open this up to any of the listeners. If you have any questions for Jane Swanson of San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, who's been giving us a great education here, uh, please, the time to ask that question is now. You can't all be that shy. If, if anybody's listening and, and trying to decide whether to call in, go to mothersforpeace.org, and over on the right, you can click on our Facebook page, too. I should mention that, that Mothers for Peace has a Facebook page that's different in content from the website, current news articles. And I'm going to put a link to hotseat.com, .org. What are you? Uh, it's nuclearhotseat.com. Nuclearhotseat.com. Yes, I um, I have bookmarked that on my personal computer, and I'm going to put a link to it on uh, our Facebook page because it's really a terrific website. Thank you. We appreciate that. So just a personal question that I have that I'm going to be asking all the activists I deal with. There can be a, a real sense of overwhelm in dealing with the issues, the facts, the information that's coming up. It can be overwhelming at times. What briefly do you do to keep your balance and your your sense of, of proportion in all of this so that you can keep doing the work? Oh, what a fine question. Yeah, and there there are days and times when one is in total despair and one wonders. But 
always bounce back, and the the biggest thing is the sense of community. I mean, the most uh, the most wonderful people in my life are people that work with me or that I work with within the Mothers for Peace and other environmental activists. Um, my family is supportive. My husband is supportive, thank goodness, so I can include him in that. But, you know, if I were trying to do this kind of work in isolation, I, I would totally lose my mind. But because I'm part of a group and everybody's very mutually supportive and Diane Curran, our wonderful attorney, is is so encouraging and education, you know, she helps us understand more. So, and, and, and anger helps, you know, anger keeps me going because the NRC really does make me mad. <laughs> well, hopefully we will help a lot more people get mad at the NRC and then see a way to channel their anger into activism because that's about this podcast is what I reached into to begin doing because I had to do something with the information. And in the process, I have found a community of others who I can be in community with and have the tough conversations and then laugh at the absurdity of it all and go out for pizza. So, Jane, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Please hang around because there's still some more news coming up, and I'd love to have you listen to the rest of it. But we've been talking with Jane Swanson of San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, an anti-nuclear activist for many decades who just brought us up to date on um, much of the information about what's happening to stop Diablo Canyon and get that sucker turned off for good. So um, at, going on the heels of uh, what Jane was sharing about that filing, uh, it took place on August 11th, and it, there were 19 legal challenges to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, to put the brakes on re uh, reactor licensing until it fully incorporates into its regulatory process the lessons learned from Fukushima. Uh, 25 groups as well as individuals filed, and among the uh, comments that were made there, uh, Jim Warren, who's the executive director of the North Carolina-based energy watchdog group NCWARN, which is one of the groups behind the filing, said, federal law does not allow the NRC commissioners to ignore those warnings in order to accommodate the nuclear industry. Uh, in addition, Representative, uh, excuse me, Congressman Ed Markey, who's a Democrat from, Mass from Massachusetts, a senior member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, said, quote, this is not the time for endless delays and studies of studies. It is urgent the NRC address vulnerabilities to America's nuclear fleet that were starkly revealed by the, flu by the Fukushima disaster. On a side note, Representative Markey is also the sponsor of H.R. House Bill 1242, which is the Nuclear Power Plant Safety Act of 2011. Uh, this is a bill, uh, you, you, there's a link to it also on uh, the face, I think I have it on the Facebook site, I will renew it on the um, Nuclear Hot Seat site as well. But currently, this bill has only 14 sponsors in the House. Only 14 congressmen and or women have stepped forward to say, yeah, this is a good idea, I need to support it. If you are anywhere in the sound of this podcast and you have a representative in Congress, I urge you to contact that person. If they are actually a sponsor on this bill, a co-sponsor on this bill, please congratulate them, tell them they're doing the right thing, give them your support. If they are not, let them know that they need to because 
this is bigger than politics. This is bigger than money. This is about life and the ability of life on this planet to continue unmolested by radiation. So uh, do what you can. Again, um, uh, Ed Markey is one of the good guys, representative from Massachusetts. And um, let's see what we can do to support him and send letters and email and, and get that bill front and center in front of the Congress. Uh, Canada, uh, in the wake of um, uh, the recording that I used just a short time ago that uh, gave you an audio version of uh, the radiation that was in Toronto just yesterday after a rainstorm. But even before that, Canadian activists have been calling on uh, the Canadian government and Health Canada to do to improve their monitoring, measuring, and reporting on radiation levels in water, soil, and food, which is a good idea for us as well. Uh, on March 20th, this is still early in the Fukushima disaster, uh, a Health Canada monitoring station in Sydney, British Columbia, detected iodine-131 at more than 300 times the background level. Despite this, a Health Canada spokesperson said that at the time that air monitoring stations have shown that radiation levels are, quote-unquote, minute and pose, quote-unquote, no risk to Canadians. I guess Canadians walk around lined with lead. It's the only way they're going to be preserved from the danger of radiation. Either that or this woman is just nuts. Um, now, here's some good news. There were hundreds rallying in New York City to shut down the Indian Point nuclear reactor. Uh, this is a post from Greenpeace. Uh, it took place on Thursday, August 11th at Dog Hammarskjöld Plaza. Hundreds of protesters supporting the closure of Indian Point nuclear plant were there. Greenpeace partnered with NYPRG to broadcast their message against the relicensing for another 20 years. People were shouting, shut it down, shut it down, uh, fist in the air. I remember the good old days of demonstrations. Time to start them up again. Uh, now, Indian Point is one of the oldest and most dangerous nuclear plants in our country. And not only does it have mountains of uh, spent fuel rods there, all of which contain plutonium, it is located on two major earthquake fault lines. Yes, in New York, they do have earthquake fault lines. And it is a mere 35 miles north of New York City. So if you impose the 50-mile evacuation radius that was suggested in Fukushima for all American citizens, 50-mile radius of Indian Point, you would need to evacuate somewhere between mm, 100, excuse me, uh, between 17 and 20 million people who live and work within that radius. Is that a doable evacuation? Somehow, I think they might have a few problems with it. Uh, with Indian Point relicensing currently being debated, Greenpeace continues to push for the complete shutdown of the plant. Now, here's another activist voice that I would love you to hear. Uh, he will introduce himself and let you know just a little bit of information. Let me try again. This is the uh, Boomer Luddite reporting from... Uh, Hello, my name is Kevin Camps with Beyond Nuclear in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And I'd just like to point out the power of the nuclear power industry in the United States. It's really based on their uh, economic prowess at the national level. They make, at a typical nuclear power plant with two reactors, over a million dollars a day in net profit. And given that large income from electricity sales, they are able to buy off the federal government, uh, sometimes state governments, uh, certainly local governments, 
to get their way. So one figure to get out there for people to show this power. From 1999 to 2009, the nuclear power industry spent $645 million lobbying the federal government. And despite that, the grassroots anti-nuclear and environmental movements in the United States have blocked most of the major goals of the nuclear power industry, things like nuclear loan guarantees, which places the risk financially of new reactors, new uranium enrichment on the federal taxpayer. That has largely been blocked. They have gotten $22.5 billion. So it's good news uh, when people get involved. We can stop this powerful industry, but we have to grow much bigger as a movement as quickly as possible. Our website is beyondnuclear.org. That was Kevin Camps, and I'm very pleased to let you know that he's going to be my interview next week. Uh, Kevin is a wealth of, of information. He's been an activist at a national and international level for more than 30 years, and he's going to bring his expertise to nuclear hot seat next week. I hope you'll be able to listen. Now, I always include holistic health tips uh, in the broadcast because we all need to be taking specific care of our health at this time. And what I want to address today is adrenal fatigue, which is not usually brought up in connection with nuclear issues. But here's the thing. The adrenals are the master gland over the thyroid. So people think that when they get stressed out, it's their thyroid that is overreacting, where really the adrenal, the master gland over it, can be depleted and is depleted by stress. Now, stress can happen for physical reasons, for emotional reasons, for spiritual reasons. It can come from an illness, an accident, uh, an emotionally difficult period of time. I got turned on to this because uh, I was experiencing many years of extremely low energy, but nothing showed up on any of the health panels that I took. And it wasn't until I was given a book to read, or at least it was pointed out and I purchased the book, that I was able to self-diagnose and then go for medical confirmation of what the, what my condition was. The book is called Adrenal Fatigue, the 21st Century Health Syndrome, oh, excuse me, 21st Century Stress Syndrome, uh, the author is Wilson, and in reading the book, there was a quiz inside of it that um, I took. It's not one of these things like, you know, in the women's magazines, like the 10 reasons that you're going to hate him in the morning. Um, this is a very elaborate, medically developed um, uh, questionnaire that the man came up with. He's a, he's a naturopath. And the one question that haunted me was, when is the last time you can remember feeling completely well? And my honest answer, this was two years ago, my honest answer was 30 years ago. In other words, immediately before my exposure at Three Mile Island. Now, whatever the physiological exposure that I had, I was under tremendous stress. I suffered from uh, many years of post-traumatic stress without even knowing what the term was. And this laid the basis for me to have regularly depleted and progressively depleting adrenal glands to the point where I was pretty much unable to live any kind of a life. Fortunately, since finding that out, I've found the right uh, homeopathics, the right naturopathic uh, supplements, I've done the right lifestyle changes, and I now have the energy to live my life with certain cautions in place. So for any of you who are working on nuclear issues, or who are working on other issues that you care passionately about but sometimes you can feel drained by, I urge you to get this book and read it and pay close attention because you don't need to suffer the lack of energy 
There are ways to combat it. There are ways to bring you back, but you have to be aware of it first. So again, the book is Adrenal Fatigue, the 21st Century Stress Syndrome by Wilson. You can get it on Amazon or the independent bookstore of your choice. One final note, and I think this would be fun. There is something called the Nuclear Orchestra. You can search them out on YouTube and listen to their music. And what they have done is create musical patterning to represent the decay of radioactive isotopes, different pitches, different patterns, so that we can have through our ears a way to visualize, if that's not a contradiction in terms, but a way to comprehend what radiation is like and what radio, radioactive decay is like. Also on this program, you got a chance to hear Geiger counter clicks. So my challenge to any musicians or people who would like to experiment in this way is to check out Nuclear Orchestra, and they do have a website where you can access all the audios they've created for each of the isotopes and create your own nuclear music using the Geiger counter clicks for, your, um, for the beat for the drum beat on it. And let's just see if maybe we can create something that help people understand the frequency and the intensity at which they're being subjected to radiation so that they can be motivated to making some change. I don't know, just a, a, a silly thought, but we need more art in this movement, more art, more music, um, more laughter so we can nourish ourselves as we move forward on this very important pathway. So remember, next week, uh, Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear is going to be my interview. Uh, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 16, 2011, day 158 for each of the three melted-down nuclear reactors at Fukushima, meaning when you multiply the, by the number of days, by the number of reactors, we have 474 nuclear leak days since Fukushima began. You can find us and links to previous programs by going to nuclearhotseat.com. Yes, the website is up. Yay! It's imperfect, but it's there. Pay no attention to the banner. It will be changed. Uh, what you can do is click on the archive tab and have access to our first two and a half months of podcast. Yes, this is number 10. Uh, we're also going to be publishing on iTunes and on 15 other podcast directories by next week. I promise, I promise. We're also on Facebook if you search under Nuclear Hot Seat. I would like to express my deep and enduring thanks to Joseph K. Adams for stepping up to help create our great new logo, which you can see on Facebook, and for his help with the website. And like I said, I promise we will have a new banner soon. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, and reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Don't go back to sleep. Everybody be well, be safe, and I trust that you will be will be together again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.